Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 15th, 2016. This is episode 1744 of the Survival Podcast. And I want to pause right there just a second. I really do. I want to drive something home to you. The 15th of the month, March has an extra day, you know, but in the in general... The 15th of the month is considered the middle of the month. So half of March is gone. Half of March is gone. Okay, March ends the first quarter of the year. A quarter of the year is two weeks away from being gone, vanished, like a fart in the wind. What are you doing on a daily basis to increase your personal security, your preparedness, your individual liberty, your self-sufficiency, and your self-reliance. Because if you're not doing anything, I have news for you. You're moving backwards. This is a sliding scale. There's no static in life, folks. I say this often, but it's true. There is no such thing as static in this situation. You're either moving forward or you're falling backward. I don't make the rules, I just tell you the way that they are. Today we're going to be talking about one way you can improve your self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Through planting perennial edibles, things that will feed you and your family and your community for many years with small effort in the beginning, a little bit of maintenance, and eventually something that pretty much looks after itself. More about that in a bit. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1744, because the episode is 1744. The awesome Alex Shrugged has the following for us today. Franklin Stove 1.0, Cotopaxi is rumbling, what could go wrong, and the Adams Family Roundup. I'm going to read Franklin Stove 1.0 just because I really like Benjamin Franklin. He's probably my favorite overall founding father for not just his contributions to the founding of our, our, our great experiment that is the United States, but for his total contributions to humanity as a whole. Benjamin Franklin has been trying to increase the heat efficiency of a colonial fireplace. In fireplaces, most of the heat goes up the chimney with the exhaust gases rather than radiating into the room. So Franklin funnels the gases past an iron plate that presumably radiates its heat back into the room. Then he tries a freestanding stove, but it smokes too much. So he contracts Robert contracts with Robert Grace to build a new design. This is a familiar Franklin stove, but Franklin calls it a Pennsylvania fireplace. The price is five pounds sterling, or about a thousand dollars in 2014 dollars. It funnels exhaust fumes past the baffle to absorb the heat. The baffle is connected to a duct of cold air that is drawn upward in a convection current of warm air in the baffle and radiates out back as heated air. The governor of Pennsylvania suggests that Franklin patent his design, but he refuses, saying. As we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad for an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours. And this we should do freely and generously. Unfortunately, the 1.0 design is not a great success to its complexity, and the cold air only draws when the stove is really hot. Nevertheless, improvements will be made to the Franklin stove over the years, and these will help its popularity considerably. My take by Alex Shrug, the Franklin stove today is a much simpler and more efficient design than the original, but it is doubtful that people would have spent the time improving it if Franklin had patented it. 
He published his plans for the design and arranged the supplier of parts. People could buy their own Franklin stove, or they could make improvements to the design and not worry about being sued. Punishing people for improving on ideas is what we do today. Rewarding people for a good thinking hasn't quite caught up yet. When the United States of America was founded, copyrights were limited to 14 years with one renewal, and patents could not exceed 14 years, period. The short limits allowed an inventor to exploit his idea, but also allowed time for others to build upon that idea later. Nowadays, most ideas are protected by copyright until our great-grandchildren are too old to build upon them. In the computer world, patents can kill an invasion since a violation of a patent does not require stealing an idea. All it requires is two people think alike, and each person implement the same idea at the same time, but only one records them at the patent office. Hmm. My take by Jack Spirico. Number one. Did Ben Franklin just like basically show us the, the, the blueprint for open source design? I think so. Uh, number two, does that make Franklin have yet another anarchist tendency? <laughs> I think so. Uh, number three, has the concept of patenting outlived its usefulness? I mean, I understand the reasoning behind patents. I really do. I get it. If I patent something, I get exclusive rights to it for a time. But have we gotten past the need for that? Would we move faster without them? Or should we at least reduce how long they last? I think the key here lies in this. Had Franklin patented his stove, it would have never become what it could become because, frankly, with all the things Franklin was doing, he didn't have time to make it so. So he understood letting go. My affinity for Benjamin Franklin from this 1744 history segment has gone up. I didn't know any of this. I, I really thank Alex for bringing this to my attention. What I, I, I Every time I learn more about Benjamin Franklin, and the man's not without faults. I think he fathered something like 80-some-odd illegitimate kids. So I'm not calling the guy a saint. But when I look at his contributions, the more I see myself in his reflection, more so even than Thomas Jefferson, who's always been the guy that I've admired most over the years, the more I learn, the more I admire the old man Franklin. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let's uh, remind you guys real quick, you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Uh, and with that, let's hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us that think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon, 
You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at Bob Wells' plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells has a plant for us that we can grow in our own backyard, a perennial one that will stick around for a long time. Uh, and be there to feed us in the future, or possibly even our kids in the future. What a great idea. Kind of fits today's show perfectly, doesn't it? And let me tell you a secret. The only reason, the only reason, the absolute only reason, that Jujubi did not make the list today is because that's what Bob sent me. Bob sent me this week, the Bob Wells Plan of the Week, the lead Jujubi tree, adaptable from zones 5 to 9, also called the Chinese date. It's a round-shaped fruit, reddish-brown, dry and wrinkled, Sweet and chewy like dates when fully ripe in early fall. Attractive, easy-to-grow tree, hardy, drought-resistant, virtually pest and disease-free. It is self-fruitful, but if you want to boost production, plant a Lang Jujube along with it. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. You can find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Let me tell you a couple things I love about Jujube. Number one, it's a very compact tree. Even if you let it get really tall, it's very thin and tower-like. So it fits into places you wouldn't otherwise think. Number two, it's thorny as all get out. So if you have a certain part of your property that people might try to access that you don't want them to, coming like over a fence or something, like back in a corner where somebody could use the corner of the other fence, 
putting one of these there might give them, well, an unwelcome surprise as they try to use it with their hands to balance themselves as they come over the fence and hopefully then be bitten by a dog. That's just one thing you can do with this tree. Next is... The Lee is the one that really is more like a date. So the Lang something is really designed to eat fresh. These are two different varieties. Lee you can leave on the tree. You leave it and you leave it and you leave it. And it goes from this big kind of dry fleshed pulpy fruit to this wrinkly thing that can have 40 to 50% sugar. Sugar. Um, there was a post out today. Prepper Chicks had it on uh, Facebook. It was on how to make your own sugar out of beets and maple and kind of pointed out that, you know, if we ever do have a major shit at the fan, sugar will be a major commodity. 44% sugar in a white form uh, that one could simply remove the peel, then simply dehydrate what's left of it till it's actually crisp, grind it up, and basically have a white powder that's half sugar. Almost like it's already sugar. You don't really have to do anything else. Uh, those of you that like to ferment stuff, I don't need to say much more. I think you have a major sugar contributor. It's also almost infinitely storable, and you don't have to do anything to it. If you let it get into that crinkled state, you pick them once they're like that, and basically you have like a giant raisin, and as long as you store it well, it'll last for a full season until you have more next year. Also, massive niche product. Uh, Asian community loves this plant. Can't find it in quantity here in the States. About the only place it's grown uh, with any level of quantity is in California. But yet you can grow it all the way into Zone 5. This is an awesome tree. It's hardy. Almost like there are some insects that will mess with the fruit, but I've never seen anything mess with the leaves of the plant or the tree. Extremely productive. And they set up suckers. Right, That's the problem for many people, but if you cut the suckers off and root them, and then you take a piece of scion and graft it to it, they sell for about $30 or $40 a tree. So you could have a little backyard production system, sell for 20 bucks to your friends at half price, show them that they sell for 40 bucks online. I, I just see so much to this tree. That's why it would have made the list today if it, uh, if it wasn't the Bob Wells plan of the week. So you can check that out and more, bobwellsnursery.com. All right, well, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I want to say one little tiny political thing today. Just one. And I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to say a reality here. I believe today is when the horrific realization will sink into America that we are going to have a general election featuring Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. It's going to sink in. And those of you that are believers in the burn or believers in the cruise... Or you got something wrong with your head, so you think, well, if Casey wins Ohio, or Rubio, who will probably lose his own state, it's over. And we're going to have the, 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 the most fantastic ass clown circus you have ever seen, with more mud slung in both directions than you've ever seen. And here's the interesting part. Almost all the mud will be true, and the devout believers on both sides won't care. And all the people on the left that bash Clinton when they were supporting the burn are going to go, what else can we do? Can't have Trump. And all the people on the right that have been bashing Trump and going, we need a constitutionalist, like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> are going to say, well, it's the lesser of two evils. And I am going to plant trees, which is what we're going to talk about now. Just saying. All right, so... Let's get right into it. I, I wanted to do a couple of things before we get into the list of plants, right? Um, and number number one, before we even do that, remind reminded you real quick that we have a work with Jack weekend this Saturday. 
Uh, that is Saturday, March the 19th. Uh, you can sign up for it on my website. You just fill out a form. It's 15 bucks a head. Uh, it's a family rate of 25 bucks. So if you're a wife and a husband, it's 25 bucks. Your wife, a husband, and a kid over 14 years old, it's 25 bucks. Two kids over 14, it's 25. You get it, right? It's kind of a group rate. Um, and if you are a parent with kids under 14, they're free. So 14 and under are free. Uh, we're going to come out. We're going to plant a whole bunch of stuff. It's going to be cool. You guys can help me out with my gimpy leg and get some stuff done so these plants will die. And I want to point out kind of like several of the plants we're going to talk about today we're actually going to be working with and planting, namely Hanson's Bush Cherry, also known as Sand Cherry, uh, and Elderberry. We'll be planting uh, 50 of each of those. Uh, nice little ones, though, so it'll be easy work. Uh, and we'll be doing a really cool design consultation type thing with you. My goal is to start at 11 and be done by 2 at the latest. Uh, go in and have lunch, and then pull a whiteboard out, and everybody that's coming, bring prints, bring pictures, bring questions, and let's go over your actual concerns with your own property. This is mostly for locals, but anybody that's you know wants to come, you can come here from Timbuktu if you want to, but I think with a week's notice, it's going to be primarily local folks or people that can drive a few hours to get here. Uh, I'll say this. I've had people like drive in for like eight hours and sleep in their truck instead of going home. If that's going to be you, tell me. We'll work something out. I'll, I'll hook you up. All right? Um, anyway, I want to start out with today's show talking about this from a different standpoint. Instead of gardening and, and growing food and improving the soil and regenerative agriculture and permaculture and all the wonderful stuff that this stuff actually is part of, right? And talking about it from a different standpoint, something that maybe will make some of you guys that like don't really do this think a little bit more about doing it. This is the best investment you can make right now. There is no more, if you're willing to do the little bit of maintenance work to make sure your plants don't die, there is no investment you can make with the relative security of this that has a bigger payoff. Now, You're not going to jump $50,000 into this like you might into a stock or a security or a portfolio or even more money. You know, we're talking about smaller dollar amounts and therefore the total accumulated returns are lower, but the percentages. And even though we're not going to talk much about trees today, because I wanted to be, I wanted to talk about stuff today you could grow in backyards, even if you don't have a big backyard. I want to talk about stuff today that you could get benefits from in a year or two at the most, right? At least some. Um, But let's just talk about it from a standpoint of a tree. If we take a property and we put in, let's say, 10 fruit trees, and we take care of them for 10 years, and we'll have about $20 into the trees each, and maybe we have $20 in each tree for sheet mulching and fertilization, and let's say we go a whopping $60 bucks in water over 10 years, because we live in a dry climate, so we have $60 worth of water, we have $100 in each tree. When If you were to go to just sell that property, if we forgot all about the production from those trees, those 10 fruit trees, mature, beautiful, productive fruit trees, will add thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to the resale value of your home. And it will be something that if somebody's competing with you to sell their home, they cannot compete with. You can't catch up to 10 years. So if, if there's a, you know, because my philosophy with selling real estate is be 1% to 2% better than everybody in your price range in your area. That's all you have to do. And your house will sell quick. Because everybody shopping that price range has settled for it. And they're like, okay, this is what I can afford. This is where I want to live. So whatever's best out of that group, that's what they buy. 
So if you have a competitor trying to market their house at the same time that understands this, and they say, oh, well, one of the things this other house has is these 10 big beautiful trees that produce food. What's he going to do? Go out and buy some little trees and stick them in the ground? And the guy's going to come over and look at it, and it's like these little sticks sticking up? Where he comes to your place and maybe he can actually pick an apple or a pear? Okay, now what's the value of the food production of a tree on an annual basis? What's the value of its aesthetics to you? I mean, this is an investment. It's the best investment you could ever make. So as we go through today's show, if you're not typically into these kind of you know planting shows, think about it from an investment standpoint. Next, I want to cover a myth. The myth is I need lots of land for this. Jack just built 10 big, beautiful trees. No. Look, I want you to go to Dave Wilson Nursery today if you have never considered uh, growing trees because you don't think you have enough room. And I'd like, to look, I'd like you to look at his content on backyard orcharding where we take trees with big root systems. It could be giant trees, and we prune them to nice small bushes. Or you might even dig a great big hole, put four trees in the same hole, and prune them each and, and balance them on four sides and have a basically like what looks like a little shrub that produces four different fruits. And we could do that ten times. That ten times we'd have 40 different fruit varieties. And we could put it in an area about the size of three to four rooms or less. Most of us have that kind of space. Now, do you want, if you have a really small suburban yard, you may not want to occupy the whole thing like that, but how much do you need to make it worth doing? A couple of vines on a fence. Some of the things we're going to talk about today don't grow very large. Some of the things we're going to talk about today you could grow right out in your front yard and, and in HOAs. People go, oh, look at the pretty flowers. Oh, those are edible, but you don't need to know that. right? So there's so much you can do even with small space. I want you to kind of kick that in. The next thing is, whenever I talk about the, uh, anything kind of permaculture gen ag, because swales are such an awesome technology, and if you don't know what a swale is, good. You don't need to know today. If you do know, and you're like obsessed with digging swales, I want to tell you that especially on smaller pieces of land, sheet mulching is probably your best bet for this type of planting. You know, a layer of, of, of compost, a layer of leaves, a layer of wood chip, or a layer of straw, Another layer of compost, layer of wood chips. Give it a little while to start breaking down. Maybe inoculate those wood chips with, uh, with fungi or like inoculate the straw that's sandwiched between two layers of compost with like, uh, uh, mushroom, uh, spawn. Like King Strafori or King Oyster or something like that. And give it some, um, some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Molasses. Dry molasses. A good sprinkle of dry molasses. A good organic fertility fertilizer with a kind of a bio boost. Something that has good beneficial microorganisms in it. And, 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 you know, provide the irrigation you need. Especially on small properties. It's, you don't mess with swales until you know why you're messing with a swale. I'll leave it at that today. Alright, next thing I want to talk about the difference between a food forest, intense planting, and small orchard, because I get a lot of questions on this. Let me give you the quick, short answer. If you have a food forest, maybe not when you plant it, but when it becomes mature, my view is at least 80% of the ground is under shade throughout most of the day. Okay, It's closed in. When you get inside it, you feel like you're inside something. You feel like you're in the woods. If it's not that, it's not a food forest. You can also get into seven-layer thinking and herbaceous and shrub and you know, sub-canopy and canopy and all. We're not going to get into that today, but no matter what, if you don't mostly shade the ground out, you have something else. You either have intense planting or you have a small orchard. And there's nothing wrong with that, but don't try to 
Force things. Do what works for you. So to me, intense planning means kind of backyard orcharding, like we talked about that Dave Wilson teaches you how to do. Uh, you're doing very pruned, heavy pruned trees. You're putting them very close together compared to where you normally would. You're doing a lot of little edible landscaping or just beneficial landscaping. Uh, but you're just, you're planting like a clump and multiple clumps. And that, it works. It's effective. It's okay. It's not really a food farce. It almost mimics a little, the clump itself can mimic a food farce. But if it's just like one guy wrote me recently and he says, I'm going to do two rows of trees spaced at 18 feet and run chicken tractors between them. And that's my food farce. That's not a food farce. That's actually a small orchard. Small orchards are where we lay out trees in rows and patterns and we, we handle them with, you know, open rows in between and we have sun hitting the ground in between the rows and things like that. Okay. Those are all okay. You don't need to get like tight assed about the difference between them, but just don't try to force one thing into the other. Design the system to meet your needs, desires, and, and, and what you're looking for. All right. So that's all we'll do on that today. It's really not a design show. Just wanted to cover that. I get so many questions on those particular things or objections based on, I don't have enough room. Okay. Well, you can grow, you know, blueberries in a couple pots if you don't have a lot of room. I'm going to be moving soon. Blueberries in pots, if you're going to be moving soon, right? Uh, you can do goji berry in pots. You can do dwarf mulberry in pots. All these are plants we're going to talk about today. So there's always something that you could be doing. All right, so let's start talking about 10 plants to consider. Um, I'll kind of talk about where they grow and some places you can get them and why I think you should consider them and kind of what you can do with them. So the first one today is Hansen's Bush Cherry. Hansen's Bush Cherry is also known as Sand Cherry. The Latin name is Prunus Bursi. Don't think I'll be giving you all ad names, but this one's important that I give this to you because I spent a lot of time trying to find sand cherries and spending quite a bit of money buying them from Stark Brothers. And I, I'm going to say today, if you want really healthy, larger sand cherry, Hansen's Bush Cherry, get them from Stark Brothers. The stuff I've got from Stark Brothers... Two to three feet high, big root systems. And you, if you want this plant this year, you need to order it soon because you're going to run out of time to do so. Gurney's sells it. So, so Stark and Gurney's are two places that sell it. I'm not going to recommend Gurney's even though I bought some this year. I'm giving you a lesson here. I bought it from, from Gurney's because you get like three to an order, and I think they're like 12 or 14 bucks to an order. They're really small. There's nothing wrong with them. Okay, nothing at all wrong with them. They're just kind of small for the money. Because if you cruise on over to a place called Coldstream Farm, and even though they have sand cherry in their subject line, right, it's a sand cherry prunus bursi, when I was running searches for Hanson's Bush Cherry and Sand Cherry, I could not find this page, even though I buy from this company all the time. It never even occurred to me that they would have this plant. I always saw it as a really improved variety, hard to find, because the only other two places I've found it so far, Gurney's and Stark. And I bought it from Gurney's because Stark was not taking orders for it until very recently. Like, it was out of stock. So instead of taking, like, Gurney's will just take an order for spring because they know they're going to have them. Stark wasn't willing to do it. So I wanted more this year, so I bought, like, 20 of them from Gurney's. Well, one day I thought, Prunus bursi, right? So it's B-E-S-E-Y-I-I, okay, is the, the last, you know, name in the, the genus species. So I Googled it. Boom. Coldstream Farm comes up. How about this? I can get, 20 if I buy 25 minimum, one to two foot tall, which is about what you get 
In fact, I'd say that's bigger than what you get from gurneys for $1.97 a piece. I get two to three footers at $25 or more for $3.29 a piece. And if I just want lots of them, I can get six to 12 inch ones, which is about what gurneys will send you for $1.50 a piece. Now, they're considerably higher until you go over $25. That's how Coldstream is. When you go over $25, you get a big price break. When you go over $100, you get another big price break. So I usually buy 25 plants because my view is if I need 10, I can always pot up the other 15, put a $5.95 price tag on them and sell them to my customers and get all my money back and more. In this case, they're all going in the ground. So what is a sand cherry or uh, this Prunus bursi? What is called Hansen's bush cherry? It's actually an improved sand cherry. So it's a little bit more fruitful. It has a little bit more flavorful fruit. It's very, very hearty. Um, you can grow it in zones four through eight. And, and I, I really believe with a little bit of shade and the right soil conditions, it would probably handle zone nine. And I really believe with like rocks to like collect heat and what have you, it would probably survive zone three. So it's really, really flexible. It grows four to seven foot high in a shrub form. In the spring, it's positively gorgeous. It flowers. It's not like a typical cherry that flowers like a pink. It's a white flower, but it's literally completely covered with flowers. Like it, It's not like it flowers a little here and a little there or out throughout the canopy. It's the entire stem from where it leaves the trunk all the way to the tip is covered in flowers. Bees love it. I mean, they just, like, you walk up to one, once it's in bloom, it's like, just bees everywhere. It produces a small cherry. It tastes just like a cherry. I mean, just like any kind of, right between sweet and tart. And it will grow in places where if you try to go regular cherries, they won't grow. So it's an option where you don't have any other option. Plus, it's compact. You can prune it to any size or shape you want. You could put up a row of these, like a hedgerow in an HOA. You know, with a, with a head trimmer and, and shape it square if you want to. It'll grow. It doesn't care. And again, you can get it for dirt cheap. And it will produce these cherries for you. The downside. The cherries are about half pit because they're small. So it's not like sitting back and, and pigging out on a big sack of cherries you can buy from the market. But it's all the flavor. And I'd say a little more. It was the, I've got my first ones last year. Really intense, awesome flavor. It'll make excellent jams, juices, wines, meads, all that good stuff. Um, it certainly would be a product you could dry and dehydrate. I never bothered yet to try, but I don't think it's going to work with like a cherry pitter. You know, the ones where you stick a cherry in it, you push it, the pit comes out, and then cherry's pitted. I don't think that's going to happen with these. I think you'd have to, maybe if you made a little bitty one, but I don't think that's going to work. I think it's going to be something you're going to store with the pit. So if you did a dried cherry product, you would have to remove the pit. You can make fruit leathers, all kinds of great stuff. But you can grow this, and again, it's hardy. I mean, that's the thing. It lives here. If it lives here, it'll live anywhere. As I move on, I want to let you know I'm going to be doing the links a little bit different today. Next to each species in the show notes, there'll be a thing that says link to one source. That's exactly what that means. It's a source you can get this plant from. And generally, I'm choosing that source because it's the least expensive or, or for some other reason. And if there's any really standout reasons as I go through the list, I'll tell you. And then I'm, under final thoughts, I'm going to give you a list of places you can get a lot of this stuff. And I'm going to eat, where I name each one, I'm just going to go straight, link those straight, like Rain Tree Nursery, Stark Brothers, Gurneys, Coldstream Farm, Oikos Tree Crops. Don't worry about it. Just look up the episode. They'll all be there, where you can find a lot, these things and a lot of other cool stuff. The next one today is elderberry. 
The source I'm going to like give you pricing off of today, because if you want to do these in volume, you want to keep your cost down, um, again, is Coldstream Farm. You can get 25 6-12-inch elderberries for $1.12 each, uh, 1 to 2 feet, $1.64 each, 2 to 3 feet, $3.29 each. Even if you only want a few, uh, 2 to 3 foot plants uh, in quantities of 4 to 24 are $5.11 a piece. Those are pretty big ones. So, again, I want to kind of point out this can be affordable. Now, these are like the ones Coldstream sells are seedlings, and they're like wild elderberry, the stuff that you might go out and forage for. But that means they're hardy, they're well adapted, they're adapted to the United States area. They do like moisture, um, definitely. Uh, they, they are a plant that you don't want to put in a really dry space. Extreme wide adaptability, zones three through eight. Um, they are a plant that should be processed in some way before you use them. Elderberries are not something you just start picking and eating like popcorn. They can actually be, some people say toxic. I think it's more upsetting to the stomach, make you sick, make you not feel good. I think you'd have to eat an awful lot of elderberries to put yourself at serious health risk, but just don't do it. You make syrups, you make wines, you make jellies, things like that. In addition to elderberries you might get from a place like Coldstream Farm, uh, you can also get more cultivated varieties of elderberry. And there's a lot of really great cultivated varieties of elderberry. There's European elderberries. Uh, the Europeans use elder a lot more than we do. There are elderberries that are golden versus uh, black. There are, from the Pacific Northwest of the United States, there are blue elderberries. I tried to grow them here. They died. I guess it makes sense. This is as different from the Pacific Northwest as you can probably get in the continental United States. Uh, dry, harsh, instead of moist and, and moderate uh, climate. Uh, but it looks like a great plant. Uh, there's just tons of different options, and I don't want to go through them all. I do want to talk about kind of my view on why this is a plant you should consider growing. One, the wide adaptability. Two, most properties have some place that stays wet. If it's because you water the whole lawn and there's this low spot that gets wet, if it's because there's a natural wet spot, if it's because there's kind of a shade, it gets sun and shade mix, and it's just like a riparian area, even in a small backyard or a large property, there's almost always a place where they fit, where they just make sense. Like, that plant will do well there, so you might as well grow it. Medicinally, they are one of the finest plants you can grow. And far more adaptable than what I think is a superior medicinal plant, which is sea buckthorn uh, or... Um, What do you call them? Uh, sea buckthorn is also known as uh, sea berry. I think it's probably the, the, one of the best medicinals you can grow on the planet, but I can't grow it here. I've had very poor results so far anyway. But elders, they grow here. They grow here. They grow anywhere. So you get a great medicinal yield. Again, you have a for your wine and mead makers and beer makers. You have uh, a plant that produces a juice that is excellent for those. You can also make good elderberry jelly. So it has all of that flexibility. The flowers are also edible. And they're an incredible flavoring agent also in fermented beverages. Uh, they just have, again, so many things going for them. You can probably grow them where you are. And I personally find them to be one of the, one of the better medicinals we can grow, especially getting through the winter is a tonic, uh, dealing with throat problems and things like that. Fantastic plant, inexpensive, and you can tuck it somewhere on your property. And when the flowers are on, It's just covered with pollinators. Bees, little bees, wasps, flies. I mean, just when, when those big white flower patties are on, they're just covered. And they smell great. 
So it, it again, and then you they're edible. Like uh, you can make basically like uh, fritters. Like so, you make these fritters that have infused elderberry uh, blossoms in them. They're fantastic. Uh, easy to propagate. Very, very easy to propagate. A bunch of different ways. Propagate from seed. You can propagate from just when suckers come up. You can just dig them up and cut them off with roots. Uh, they root easily. It's a plant that if you are doing any kind of like small farm setting and things like where you have customers, you can probably produce, you know, 50 of them a year and sell them for 10 bucks a piece. That's 500 bucks in your pocket. I mean, just think about it that way. You don't have to compete with, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot and all. I've not seen that plant anywhere available that way. So if you show people what it does and educate your customers that you already have, you know, that's an extra 500 bucks for very little work. And if you, if you start cultivating it smartly and encouraging the suckering, you can probably create, you know, half of what you would sell just by digging them up and cutting them off the mother plant. So, so almost no work other than harvesting them. Uh, just a great all-around plant. Please consider it for your need. Next up is, like, the one plant that, like, almost everybody's probably heard of that's listening to this show today. There's probably two of those, probably blueberry and blackberry. And go to blueberry next. The reason I think you should consider blueberry is you literally can grow it almost anywhere. If you are outside of this plant's range, you are either outside of the United States of America or you are growing with some type of shelter, indoor, greenhouse thing anyway, or you're not growing much at all. Because you can find varieties of blueberries that are, are good from zones 3 to 10. So I, I just don't think there's many places left. And again, if you're in zone 2, you're doing some sort of underground greenhouse, earth-sheltered something, you, you're... You're not growing a lot of anything in zone two. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying you're going to be doing some kind of extra measures to do it anyway. So then you could go ahead and grow blueberries there. Um, you could also grow them almost anywhere from a standpoint of they are very adapted to large containers. They do great in large containers. They like acidic soil. And for many of you, you're going to be better off doing them in either containers or what I would call a really high raised bed. So you're going to get them high enough up that you could basically have a soil mix that is is really isolated from your native soil if you have alkaline soil like I do. If you do that for them, they'll just grow and grow and produce and produce. It's also likely the case that you can if you if you have enough room to plant a lot of them, you can come up with four or five varieties that stagger their production and give yourself a really long productive season. So you have two or three bushes that are early and then you have two or three that are kind of early mid-season and then you have two or three that are like mid-season and then you have like two or three that are mid-late and then you have like two or three that are late so you can give yourself months of production if you do that there's also a lot of varieties in all of those uh, ripening orders that are very large berries they taste good most people like blueberries i haven't met a lot of people that don't like blueberries i've met a lot of people that don't like blueberry stuff Like if it's like a bunch of blueberries, like a blueberry juice or like a blueberry pie or something because it's too much. But individually eating, you know, ripe blueberries, most people seem to like them. They'll dry well if you want to dehydrate them for storage. They freeze great. They're, they're a great product to freeze. Again, meads, wines, beers, all of those things, uh, jellies, things like that. I've never been a fan of blueberry pie. I'm not a big pie eater to begin with. I'm not a big sweets eater to begin with. But I'll tell you what is good. Blueberry muffins. And my grandmother used to make a cake because blueberries are one of the 
We called them, you know, like the community forage crops that we had in Pennsylvania growing up. So what I mean by that is there were certain times a year that wild plants were productive, and we'd get 20, 30 people together and get in Jeeps and stuff and ride up on the mountain and just go out and just pick and pick and pick, make a day of it. Like take a grill, cook, drink. The adults would be drinking beers, uh, maybe do some fishing or just walking around. But we'd be with a massive harvest. And then we would sort all of the red ones out when it came to blueberries or, you know, stuff that was underripe when it came to strawberries. And then just divide them up to each family, and then everybody would take an equal share to take home. And we would end up with a ton of blueberries that way. And my dad and I used to just go on our own and pick them up uh, on Pine Hill Mountain where I grew up hunting and, and things like that. So we ended up with a lot of them, and she would freeze just tons of them. And she made a lot of blueberry pies, and I was never a fan of that. And she came up with this, like, it was like kind of like a blueberry cake, but it was more like a coffee crumb cake with blueberries in it. Man, that takes me back when I think about that. That was fantastic. So very versatile fruit. And those of you that are in that kind of interim stage, like I said, we're like, we're only going to be here a couple of years. I say plant trees anyway. Leave it behind for someone else. Invest Invest 60 bucks and put three trees in for the future of, 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 of the community that you're part of right now. And, and see it as a value to your new homeowner uh, or what have you. But I know you want to take things with you. Blueberries are a great plant to do that with because they're well-adapted to large pot containers. So just, again, a great plant. Uh, Bob Wells has quite a good selection of blueberries, especially for those of you in the Texas area. So I have him as the one source link next to blueberries. And remember, you get 10% off of all your orders from Bob Wells if you're an MSB member. But this is a plant that you can source anywhere. The box stores probably do have them. They probably have ones that are well adapted to your area. There's tons of nurseries that sell them. There's almost no place that doesn't sell blueberries. Those of you that are kind of switched on with permaculture and know Bill Mollison's theory about plants like blueberry that need acidic soil and there's different layers in the soil and it'll stratify and find a layer with the, the okay. I believe that's true to an extent if the soils are deep and fertile. In my situation, You have not enough soil to have any layer that's not alkaline, and the deeper you go, the more alkaline it gets, because what's on the bottom? You know, calcium rock, basically, limestone. So I've tried it here. In, in the best conditions, I can give blueberries. The very best conditions, moist, dappled shade, east sun, west side shade, and they look like they're rocking and rolling. And like June comes and they look like somebody poured a chemical on them and they burn up. So if you have alkaline soils, especially most of you in this like Blackland Prairie area of Texas, consider giving them some sort of an isolated soil, even if they're going to be in the ground. High raised beds, go to the acid side of things, use amendments to get there, and, and, and keep them well mulched, keep them moist, And keep the afternoon sun in these southern climates off them. You want them to get morning sun up till about noon. And that late day sun, you want them somewhere where they get shade from that. And they will do fantastic for you. The next one I have for you technically is an annual, but it doesn't behave like an annual. It behaves like a perennial. Um, it is the most productive hands-off plant if you give it what it needs and let it go that I know of. This is the Jerusalem artichoke, also known as the sun choke. And what you're growing is a great big plant that you pull up at the end of the year and you get tons of tubers out of. The tubers, um, when fried, taste a lot like a potato. When thinly sliced, have kind of a water chestnut thing going on. 
They can be made into a porridge. They can do a lot of things. There's, there's a couple of things about them that are really interesting. One, while they are a carbohydrate crop, the, the, the primary sugars in them are in the form of inulin and other sugars that don't digest rapidly the way that typical sugars do. These, this is why sometimes they're referred to as fartichokes, and I can tell you they do have that effect on some people. For some people, you just break a lot of wind. For some people, it's, it's, it's unpleasant. I, I do have to also say this. I, I know this isn't like a, a really friendly topic to some people, but farts come in degrees of, of stench, and the, the, the fartichoke fart is a blank, okay? A lot of gas, uh, not a lot of odor. So it's not like, <laughs> it's, it's a funny fart, right? Because it makes noise if you let it, but it doesn't gas and gross out the room. Okay? I, just saying. There are ways to prepare them. You can look up and research it where you reduce that effect. For a lot of people, the answer is simple. Don't eat a lot in one sitting. What we generally do is we chop a couple up really thin, we fry them in, in bacon grease, and serve them like home fries with little crumbles of bacon on them. Fantastic that way. I've also found, for some reason, when you thin slice them and put them on something like a salad as a small garnish, they don't seem to have any effect like that at all on me. Other people, your, your mileage may vary. You can grow this plant almost anywhere. Remember I said zone two? Not going to be growing much. Zone two, you can grow this plant. It will grow, it will reproduce, it will winter over in the ground if you protect it, and it will come back. And if you just harvest it all and put a few pieces in the ground next year, you'll get plenty more. Okay? It is just fantastic for, for, for that reason. By the book, Zone 7 is kind of where it tops out. It doesn't like hot summers. Bull. Okay? Somebody sent me four tubers. I cut them into three pieces each and put them in a 10-foot bed. This is zone A, and it was a harsh summer the first year I grew them, and I got four five-gallon buckets of tubers out of a 10-foot by 3-foot bed. This year I'm putting them into a, uh, a more typical raised garden bed. I'm taking my little annual garden. I'm going almost all perennials with even it. Um, and I'm going to actually probably hill that one up. I'm going to, you know, it's like one two by six high. I'm going to probably put a second stack of two by sixes on it just to give it more depth. Because what I found with them, with my shallow soils, is the plant gets really big and it like falls over. To get them to do well in your southern climates, what you need is irrigation. If you keep them the soil moist, they will do just fine even in a zone eight. What they happens to them in zone nine? I don't know, but I bet we're going to hear from somebody in the comments section that grows them in Zone 9. There are many different varieties. My one source for these today for you is Oikos Tree Crops, and I think you'll love that sign if you check it out. Here's a caution. I've ordered a lot of things on Oikos Tree Crops, and they just show up. And I've ordered a lot of things that, like, a month later I hear, um... Yeah, uh, we don't have any right now, or, you know, do you want a refund? Or And sometimes it's quick, and sometimes it seems it takes, like, a long time. Uh, they're a small business. They're in a very niche area. They seem to be doing better with their customer service. I'm just going to tell you I've had a hiccup or two. I waited two and a half years to get my uh, my big ground nuts that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but that was they were very upfront about that, so that was a totally different situation. They've never not made something right. For me, one year, a, a product that I ordered that I didn't get in spring was because they had a greenhouse collapse in ice. 
So that happens. There, there's just not much you can do about it. But I just want to tell you, this is not like an Amazon level. You order it, and 48 hours later, your product shows up. The reason I'm mentioning them as my one source, though, is one, I think you'll enjoy looking at all the cool stuff they have that no one else does, like ground pea and perennial turnip and stuff like that, uh, perennial bunching onions and all, you know, good King Henry and all this other cool, great Solomon seal. And two, they have the largest selection of varieties of Jerusalem artichoke that I've actually found anywhere and some really cool ones. So that'll be in the one link source. But you can get these. Um, I'm pretty sure Raintree sells them. I know Grow Organic sells them, which is Peaceful Valley Farms. Tons of people sell them. You can get them on eBay. I've talked to a lot of people. This is how they started growing their Jerusalem artichokes. They went to Whole Foods. They bought a, you know, a bunch of them. Uh, they, they ate some. They took a few pieces of the ones they didn't eat. They put them in the ground and they grew Jerusalem artichokes. It's not too late to get them in the ground at all. Get them in the ground now. You will have a fall harvest from Jerusalem artichoke. Um, from a standpoint of a prepper plant, this plant looks like a big kind of wild sunflower. It doesn't look like food. All the, the yield is under the ground. No one's going to steal it, take it, understand what it is unless they really know what they're doing. And the productivity per square foot is insane. And if you, if you end up, well, what am I going to do with all these things? One guy wrote in recently, he had so many he didn't know what to do with them all. He took them down to uh, a farmer's market, talked to a guy that had a table there and said, I got a bunch of these things. I got, you know, X number of pounds of them, um, you know, that, that I don't need. Would you want to sell them? And the guy, you know, tries it with a, you know, cuts a piece off with a knife, tries it or whatever, and goes, yeah, okay, I'll do it like in a consignment thing. They sold for $8 a pound, and they sold out in two hours. And I think the guy put, like, several hundred dollars in his pocket by doing that. So, I, again, this is just one of these things. And, again, it is technically an annual, okay? But it's almost impossible to get all of the pieces of it out of the ground And I've had it grow three years in a row in the same bed without replanting it because there's always little pieces that just, and it grows back. Here's the problem for people. It's invasive! Ah! No, it's not. No, it's not. What Jerusalem artichokes do is they send lateral runners out, and you won't know they're there until the next season. That's the little tubers you won't find. They'll send up a plant. If you try to pull it off when it just first starts growing, you will make it angry, It will conserve energy, put out a bunch of little bulblets, and make more. If you leave it alone and let it get about a foot to a foot and a half tall, you just reach down, pull it out of the ground, throw it on the compost heap. And the little bulb that you pull out when you pull it out will be hollow. It will have used all its energy to grow, and you can control it very, very easily that way. It's not going to take over the world. If it was going to take over the world, it would be where you are right now growing under your butt. It does have an adaptation that, that lends it to large container growing, though. Dave Jackie, when he moved into his house that he has, I think it's in Connecticut, there was this big, like, concrete tank-looking thing. Like, just center block, like, hole. You know, several feet high and, you know, several feet by several feet. And he went, wow, what a great place to do composting. I'll just throw all my compostables in there and just clean it out once a year and I'll have compost. So he did that, and he ended up with a couple pieces of Jerusalem artichoke getting thrown in there, and they grew. So he thought, the heck with it. Just let it grow in its own compost. Let it grow. See what happens. So when he went to harvest it, since it sends out laterals, whatever it runs into something, it sets a tuber. So that when it runs into another plant and sets a tuber, it can displace the other plant. He said he saw it blow an asparagus crumb one time out of the ground. So when you put it in a container and it gets to that end, it sets tubers. 
So all winter long, you just go down along the edge of your container and pull out tubers whenever you want them. You don't have to store them indoors. And they won't start growing again until the soil warms in the spring. So great plant. Definitely consider it. I, don't, I think it's like the ultimate survival plant. The next one I have for you today is groundnut. Now, for those of you outside the United States, a lot of you refer to the peanut as groundnut. And, okay, it's a nut-like legume that grows in the ground. Okay, I get why you call it that. That is not what I am talking about today, though. I'm talking about a plant known as Apius americana. Uh, it is a tuber, not an actual nut. They call it a nut because it kind of tastes like a nut, and it, 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 it kind of looks like a nut. But it's like a small potato-like thing, and it's somewhere between potato and water chestnut. I actually prefer it to Jerusalem artichoke. They can be small, a little bit hard to clean, but they are a native to the northeastern United States. What they need is moisture. If you have moisture, they're, they're probably going to be okay most, most anywhere throughout the United States. Dry soil will make them shrivel up and die. You do not want dry soil for these guys. Other than that, if you have good fertility and good moisture, they're going to grow for you. When you establish a bed of them, you really need to not harvest them for two years. And in the second year, you can harvest them every year after that. You harvest the big ones, leave the little ones behind. Some They grow in like a vine, a trailing vine. They're also a legume, and that means they, they, they fix nitrogen. So they can be gilded in with other things. But you, if you're going to put them in with other plants, you need to put them in obviously with plants where you digging up the soil is not going to destroy the other plants. I'm going to do a whole bed of these this year. I have a, a, a variety uh, called Nutty Groundnut. This was uh, this came out of LSU University, and it grows some of them to the size of like potatoes. Like one, uh, like one of them can be like four to five inches, like fist sized. Uh, what they sent me, none of them are quite that big. Some of them are pretty big, bigger than any I've ever seen though. But this is the one I waited two and a half years from Oikos for. Um, I am not going to link to the Oikos uh, site for Groundnut because all of them are sold out for the year uh, with the one link. I will have Oikos in the main thing, and you can look this up for yourself and see what it looks like. Um, I'm going to link for the one link next to the product description or the, the, the name in the show notes to a place called Norton Naturals. Um, no, I'm not. They're out of stock, too. Damn it. Let me see what else I can find for you guys. Okay, I found you a site called Perennial Pleasures Nursery. Uh, this is a Vermont company. Uh, they do say they have theirs in stock. It, it, the quantity is one for $10.95. Now, you might think that's really expensive, but let me read you what they ship. We ship a necklace of young tubers, which should be planted horizontally about three inches deep. I want to explain to you what that means. What you get with these ground nuts is it'll produce a big tuber. That big tuber will send out a lateral root that year that it's produced to a large tuber. Along that root, you'll get little like bulblets about the size of like a shooter marble. Uh, usually, a necklace is what they're calling, it, but a string is what I've always called it. Will have like six to twelve of these things on. Since I've never bought from this company, I don't know how many you're going to get. But each one of those becomes then a big tuber that produces another necklace or string of tubers. So you don't need that many of them to get established with them. And I would advise you to kind of shop around for this one. This one's a little bit harder to find. And I haven't had the greatest results so far. So I'm going to a cultivated bed dedicated to these guys with uh, with weed blocking fabric and sheet mulch and irrigation. 
Uh, and I'm going to put my, my nutty ground, that's my big tubers, into that environment. And I want to get those planted maybe this weekend during the workshop if we fix up that garden area. If not, within the next week and get them going for the future. This plant is it's beautiful. It's got some really cool flowers that come on. It fixes nitrogen. It is a potato-like plant. It is perennial. It comes back year after year. The carbohydrate is almost 100% inulin. It reduces appetite, and it stabilizes blood pressure. It is beneficial for those seeking to lose weight. It is beneficial for diabetics, both type 1 and type 2. It tastes great. Again, it's kind of like this water chestnut type thing, but nuttier than a water chestnut and not as waterlogged as a water chestnut. And my understanding, again, I'm a little bit outside, like the native range, northeast, humid, you know, moderate climate, that's the native range for this thing. You see them all over like creek banks and stuff like that. Um, I'm in this dry, arid place, but I'm going to give it a place that makes it happy. And I'm going to go with these big, giant ones. By next year, I may be able to start providing some of the, the, the necklaces to people of this large, improved variety out of LSU. I can't do that this year. I don't have that many. I did give some to Nick Ferguson to kind of hedge my bet in case I lost any of them, uh, or lost all of them, so to speak, because I did wait two and a half years for that. This will be the hardest one to find unless, if you live in, like, Virginia up to, like, Vermont, New Hampshire, all in that area, they grow wild. Learn what they are, learn where they grow, and you can probably go out and forage hundreds and hundreds of them, both for eating and for cultivation. And then, you know, when you do that, take your largest ones and use those to establish. You'll have good genetics, and, and, and you start out with a, a more mature tuber. All you do is plant them. Now, here's the best news about this plant. Though you need to really take two years to establish it, once you do, you can harvest it any time of year. You can, if you keep it in like a loose, friable soil where you can get in there, you can kind of dig down, look around, find a big one or two, pull them out, cut them off, use them, cover it back up, and everybody else just keeps growing. You can, you can harvest them dormant. You can harvest them when they're growing. You can do whatever you want. If you end up pulling a necklace out, you know, then you just take that and, and replant it. And they say to plant it in a, a line, like set it in the ground. I, I've seen them grow pretty well if you cut it into little pieces and spread them out. So, again, it's, it's, it's one of these things that, like, you harvest and replant, harvest and replant, harvest and replant. But while harvesting, you're replanting. There's just no real effort to it uh, beyond typical harvest. It was a plant that was considered for commercial cultivation in the early part of this country, but because they were relatively small and, and you had to put in two years before you started getting your yield, that didn't work with the mentality, right? I need, I need a profit now, especially when people were trying to survive. And because it was easy to forage, the people that were more of like your mountain people, your gardeners or whatever, so why should I garden this? I'll just go out and harvest it. So that's another thing. If you live in an area where this stuff grows... Maybe you don't really need to plant it. Maybe you can just learn to forage it. This is a great plant to learn to forage. The next one I have for you is, is really a perennial vegetable and one of the better perennial vegetables you can grow. It's somewhat like asparagus, but it's unique. And in many ways, it's more useful than asparagus for a lot of suburbanites that have shady areas. This plant is called Giant Solomon Seal. It's a woodland species in the lily family. It produces uh, these, these green spring vegetables. It'll be one of the first things you can harvest in spring. You don't have to plant it every year. You want to harvest it right before the leaves open. And the flavor, again, is like a mild asparagus or spinach. It's kind of like spinach and asparagus met. But when you cook it gently, it's not all mushy like spinach, I guess is the way to put it. 
Uh, you can take a lot of cuttings every season. They have a great big rootstock. They're a pain in the ass to produce from seed. Um, Oikos Tree Crops does sell potted Solomon seal, or giant Solomon seal, I should say, because it's, there's two different plants. And once you get it established, it's very easy to propagate from divisions and root cuttings and things like that. So you get a couple of them, you get them going, you propagate them, divide them every spring, or divide half of them every spring, so you harvest from one, divide the others, and you end up with a, with a really great plant that grows. Like, kind of a lot of people in their backyards, if you have a little bit sizable backyards, maybe have some native trees, you don't want to cut them down, it's all shady down there, this is a great plant for that. It'll do really well at like the edge of that woodlot area that you have or something like that. Needs fertile soil, deep soil, uh, moisture. That, that's the big things it needs. So that's another one you can consider growing. Next up, the other one you've probably heard of many times, um, blackberry. Blackberry is underrated. I, I think people are unaware of how many different varieties of blackberry that there are. Um, they grow very large berries so that you get a, a really great crop out of only even really a few plants. Um, and there's different varieties. There's what's called primocane and floricane uh, blackberries. Floricane are what most blackberries are. Floricane simply means a second-year cane, and that means that you plant your blackberries, and they grow for a season generally, and then you prune back your blackberries, not all the way to the ground. You tip them back to a couple feet high, whatever, And uh, next year, those canes produce fruit, and new canes grow. And after they grow their second year, the canes die out. So at the end of that season, you prune out all your second-year canes that are fruited. It's very obvious the difference between them. And uh, then you tip back your new canes, and then it fruits again, and that's floricane. Primocane fruits on first- and second-year canes. So that allows you to take a couple different approaches. One, you do everything I just said, except you... You don't do anything different, right? But what happens is you get a, a crop in the spring and in the fall. Uh, so you get two crops a year. The other way you can do it is in the fall each year, you just prune them almost to the ground and let them grow back. Now, I don't like that approach because you get less of a yield, but it's really, really easy. So there's there's those different varieties. Most of the primocanes, in fact, I think all the primocanes are very thorny, though. There are some thornless blackberries. Uh, Chester... And what's the other one? It's the one that I have in abundance, um, and I can't think of it. Uh, Triple Crown. Triple Crown and Chester are two really great varieties that are thornless that most blackberries, including those, need support. Most of your primocanes, though, do pretty well without support. These can be tucked in anywhere. But here's the thing with blackberries. People think, okay, blackberry, blackberries, that's it. Well, blackberry is a great medicinal. It can be used to make a syrup. It can be used to enhance that elderberry syrup. It can be used as, a, as something to brew with. It makes a fantastic liqueur. So now we're talking about taking blackberry, squeezing it, sweetening that into a syrup, and mixing it with like a, um, a grain alcohol like you might accidentally make by accident while you're making fuel. Um, really, really a great sipping liqueur like that. High proof, not the stuff you buy in the store that's like, you know, in 40 proof and sugar syrup, but something you wouldn't drink a lot of. You don't want to get drunk on this stuff, guys. This is like, just when you're in the winter when it's cold and it's, you go outside and you have this little snifter of, 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 of blackberry liqueur. And you're in spring for a minute, right? So that's another thing they'll do. The leaves make a fantastic tea. 
You can either just dry them and make a tea. You can use them green to make a tea. You can actually ferment them to make a black tea like you're accustomed to with English teas. They are caffeine-free, but they give a very typical tea-like flavor. I, I bet you didn't know that they, all, they did all that. Bark and root are both medicinals as well with blackberry. You can grow them almost anywhere. Um, they fit in almost everywhere. Most people like them because they're not a tree. They're less susceptible to bird pressure. They're easy to, to, to propagate. You take a blackberry cane. That first year cane we talked about, when it gets nice and long and flexible, bend it over, dig a little hole, and bury the tip in the ground. At the end of the year, you need to prune that cane back anyway. Okay? So you cut it in half, you dig up the tip you buried, it's got roots on it, and you plant it somewhere else, you have a new blackberry, or you put it in a pot and you sell it for ten bucks in the spring. Awesome, huh? All from a blackberry. So there's another one to consider. Uh, Bob Wells has a great selection of blackberries, so I'll put them down as the one source. But some other good sources of blackberries, Stark Brothers, Rain Tree Nursery, Grow Organic, your local nurseries, box stores, you name it. Everybody has blackberries. But research and know what you're buying and why you're buying what you're buying. And plant at least a couple varieties so that you get to extend your season and do a little bit of help with, um, with uh, your, your cross-pollination, even though most are self-fertile. And I am a big fan of wild blackberry as well. So if you have a place you can forage wild blackberry, go for it. People worry about it becoming kind of invasive and spreading, and that can happen, especially if you were to dig up and replant wild blackberry. That stuff is, is tough as nails. So, but with a little bit of containment and thinking about what you're doing and why you're doing it, you shouldn't really have a problem with it. Here's the secret to, to excellent blackberry production. Blackberry is not a field species, and it's not a forest species. It is a consummate edge species. When I was a kid, both in Florida and Pennsylvania, blackberry was something we always picked. And you'd often find it along the ditches on the roadside and whatever, and here's where you'd find it. The side of the road that got eastern sun and afternoon shade, or if it was on the western side, It was right up against the edge, or if it was like the south or the north side, it was right up against the edge of the woods. So it would be like grass and whatever, and maybe a little bit of growing and not real happy, and then it was just that transitional edge. So you don't necessarily have to be doing food forestry or anything, but if you have a place that's like that, that has kind of like, it gets sun for, you know, let's say it gets 60% sun while the sun's up. Whether it's 60% of the time, or there's a 60% shade or something like that, and you have a reasonable amount of moisture, it doesn't have to be fertile, but moist, you get great blackberries. You don't want wet, you want moist. Wet gives you like these like sad, kind of like waterlogged, over juicy berries. Moist give you like this big, giant, intense flavored berry. So that's how to grow the ultimate blackberries. Just think of all the wonderful things you can do with them. And again, by using several different varieties, you'll extend your harvest um, quite a bit. Next up today, hardy kiwi. Um, most people think of kiwis as those little things you buy in the store that look like a small furry potato. And they're good. They taste great, but they're a pain in the butt to peel. And you end up like cutting off like 10% of the flesh just to get them peeled. I'm sure somebody knows a perfect way to peel them or whatever. Uh, to me, they're kind of a pain in the butt. Like to eat them, pain in the butt to peel them. Hardy kiwis have a lot of things going for them. Number one with hardy kiwi, there's no fur. They're like a big grape that tastes like a kiwi, and you just pop it in your mouth and eat it. 
How about productivity? A mature vine, you get a vine up to six, seven years of age in good shape, well matured, can produce a hundred pounds of kiwi from a vine. The downside, you need two. You need at least one male and a female. Now, you can do one male to several females, or you can graft uh, a, a bit of male onto your female vines or vice versa to improve your pollination. These things can be managed like a grapevine on a trellis. They can go up a tree. Given years and years to propagate, they can become massive. I saw one video of a food forest in Massachusetts where there was this massive tree. I'm talking a tree like two grown men couldn't get their arms around it. There was a kiwi vine at the base, bigger around than my leg, going up this tree, going across the canopy to another huge tree. A hundred pounds, this thing was producing hundreds of pounds. And they would just shake it and like kiwis would just rain down. Um, so depending on the size and scope of what you're trying to do, these things can be awesome. They are very hardy, cold hardy in a zone three or even colder with the right situation. What they are not is happy about living here in Texas. I have not been able to pull it off. I've got one after all my attempts that's still alive and it's a male vine. So I'm, I'm going to let that go this year and see how it does. And if it does okay, I'm going to try grafting some female pieces onto it and see how that works. I just don't think it's in the card for me. They like acidic soil, they like moisture, and they like cool weather. Um, I have moist springs, dry summers, alkaline soil, hot weather. So I, I just don't know that it's in the cards for me, but it's something you may really want to consider growing. It's one of those things that I think about if I lived in the Northeast, if I could tolerate government, I would grow the hell out of some hardy kiwi. Um, best source I know to find different varieties of them is Rain Tree Nursery, so that's where I've linked for the one source. But there's a lot of different uh, options out there when it comes to, uh, to hardy kiwi. Uh, and again, you can grow the fuzzy ones too. They're just nowhere near as cold hardy, and maybe I need to give that a shot. I don't know. Next up is Goji Berry. You can get those from Bob Wells and get your 10% discount if you're an MSB member. They're available more and more from a lot of different places. Um, this is a plant that I thought was really weak when I first tried to plant one. I really did. I thought, man, th this is just not worth the effort. But I was reading about them growing in like the Utah desert and going, what the hell is the problem? So I'm going to say this for anybody that's thinking about ordering them. They don't travel well. They show up and they just look sick and they look miserable and they look unhappy. If you're going to order one, just don't plant it when it looks like that. Get it into a great big pot where it can expand its root systems. Get it into good fertile soil. Give it at least 50% shade until it like comes back to life. Then give it like, you know, you can have a little bit more sun, but still give it some shade. Get it nice and happy and plant it in the fall. Or buy a bunch of them and plant them and let the, 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 the winners win. I had one I planted in my little orchard, and I thought it died. It just looked sick. I threw it in the ground. I was disgusted with it. And at the end of the year, there were a couple little stems coming up, and I'm like, that looks like goji. Next year, boom. Uh, I had a couple cuttings I bought from a backyard uh, uh, nursery, uh, and I put them into another little orchard, and they're both huge bushes. Actually, another one out in my small food forest, and they're all booming this year. Almost all of them actually did make it. I just think that they would have been further along if I babied them at first. The good news. Once you have one, you have as many as you could want for the rest of your life. Once you have one established, you wait for spring, and when you start getting that green new growth, you wait till you got a good green, uh, green cutting, you cut it, you strip the leaves off about half the stem, you stick it in moist potting soil in a pot, 
You put it in the shade, you keep it wet for two weeks, and it's got roots. And you grow it into a little plant, and you plant it that fall, and you have another goji berry. And if you want to make a thousand of them, you probably can make a thousand of them off a few plants. They sell for twenty, uh, from twelve to twenty dollars a piece. They are not the best tasting fresh berry. I'll, I'll, I'll say that I was like th last year was the first year I really had fresh goji berries in quantity, and they have this kind of weird. It grows on you flavor. I got to where I was eating like uh, like four or five of them every morning, and I liked them. But when you dry them like a raisin, they get a lot more sweet. Warning, if you eat handfuls and handfuls of dry goji berry, you will um, sit on the toilet for a long time. Okay, It's like eating a whole bunch of prunes if you eat a bunch of them. In moderate quantities, they are one of the most valuable nutraceutical plants you can get your hands on. They are fantastic in so many ways I can't go into today, but they are great. They make an amazing tea. You take a small handful of them, a uh, big pinch, I guess is a better way. You put them in hot water. You sweeten that honey, uh, stevia, sugar, whatever you want. You just drink it as a tea, and when you're done with the tea, you eat the berries. They taste fantastic that way. You can use them as adjuncts in other herbal teas. Okay, But they are not like something you sit down and eat a bowl of. But they're good mixed in with other things. The leaves make a great tea. So once you have this big bush, you have all these leaves, so much easier to grow than uh, Camilla, which is your normal you know, teas from China type thing. And it's kind of similar when you make it as a, a fresh green tea to a fresh Camilla tea. So it's got that going for it. Again, a, another plant. See, if you just plant all the things I said today, Once you get them established a couple years into it, you could be making several hundred plants a year to sell for five bucks a plant and make a couple thousand dollars a year. I'm not talking about walk away from your job income. I'm just talking about it's not so many that they're hard to move. You talk to a few people, put some ads on Craigslist, and all of a sudden you have food, you have medicine, and you have money all from a little backyard. Okay? Uh, the next one's mulberry. Now, mulberry is a largely misunderstood plant. Uh, undervalued because we have so many native wild mulberries that just grow everywhere uh, that don't maybe necessarily produce the best fruit. A lot of them are males in, in, in the, 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 the wild version, so they don't produce any fruit. Uh, we have fruitless mulberry all over the place that are basically extrapolations of that for ornamental trees. And then we have productive mulberries that produce great big blueberry or purple uh, berries, Uh, great big giant trees, and the birds come and eat them in mass, and then they crap purple poop all over everything, and people go, I hate mulberry. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, there's many different options with mulberry. One, Mora alba isse is dwarf mulberry. It will grow to about 9 to 12 feet, or you can prune it and keep it any height you want, like a shrub. It is very productive. It is very easy to reproduce, just like goji berry. Green stem, You know, so it's to the point where if you bend it, bend it, bend it, it pops instead of really, really loose and hasn't gone to, you know, you want something that you bend and it just kind of folds over. And you don't want a green stem that when you bend it, it, it cracks. You want something that kind of pops. When you get that stage, cut it, pull the leaves off, cut the other leaves in half, stick it in more soil, keep it in the shade, bang, roots. You can make more, 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 more out of them. It takes till about the third year uh, where they really get laden with fruit. Mine this year are covered with berries already. Now, they're green and not ready to eat yet, but they're covered with it. Kind of like a blackberry. They can be dried. 
They can be used to make to eat fresh. They can be used to make juice. They can be used to make wine, meads, etc. The leaves of mulberry are very palatable, so you can take cuttings of leaves, your prunings off of your mulberries. If you're a person that keeps rabbits, give it to rabbits. Uh, my ducks, to my chagrin, eat like all the leaves off the bottom of my mulberry bushes. Uh, but then there's also lots of other options with trees. You can get a great big mulberry tree. And mulberry is one of these plants that you really can maintain at any size that you want. You can get a great big mulberry tree, train it up a fence, and train it like a grapevine, and as long as you prune it like that, it'll grow that way and it'll produce for you like an es espalier. Okay? Um, you can let it get great big, and if you want to get a great big mulberry tree and you don't want purple poop because of the location for the tree, you grow white mulberry. Beautiful Day is one example that you can grow. I have three of them doing fantastic here. Um, so it just has all these wonderful things going for it. It's very hardy. It's adaptable to most of the country, and it's very long-lived. You, 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 a, a mature, large mulberry will live 100 years or more and have a huge timber yield at the end of its lifestyle that's actually far more valuable as timber than most people get credit for because we just don't do that with mulberry. There's not really a lot of it being grown uh, in the United States. It can also be grown as a pure fodder crop. Uh, it has yields on par with alfalfa. Uh, or better, depending on certain climates. So it's not really that it can outproduce alfalfa by the year as a fodder crop for like livestock, but it, there's places where alfalfa just won't do it, and mulberry will, like the tropics and subtropics. So this is a fantastic, fantastic plant that you can grow in a pot as a dwarf variety. I have three, in, three dwarfs in a pot right now, and three dwarfs in pots right now that I mainly use as my propagation uh, tool. So... Definitely consider those um, to try to get you some variety in mulberry. Kind of wrapping up here, actually. Um, I want to give you some sources. And, again, you don't have to write these down or whatever. Just go look up episode 1744, and I have links to all of these. You can't get everything that I've mentioned at each of these locations, but you can get some of the things at each of them. And they're all places I've done business with that have a lot of other really fantastic stuff. And I've always been overall pleased with doing business with them. There are, of course, Bobwell's Nursery, Raintree Nursery, which you guys at Raintree owe me something, man, after all these years. I've sent you guys, if anybody from Raintree listens to me, you guys should be hooking up with me and doing something with me because, God bless you, I have sent you more business than you know what to, to, to do with. Um, but, yeah, Raintree has some stuff you just won't find anywhere else. Oiko's Tree Crops has some of the most unique stuff that you will ever find anywhere. Period. Stuff you just don't find anywhere else as well. Peaceful Valley. Great people. Great selection. Not as much odd stuff, but some really cool stuff. Uh, and one of the places I get lo most of my like cover crops and things like that as well. Willis Orchards. Uh, lesser known. Uh, kind of they do all their shipping in spring and they're done for the year. But they have great pricing, great selection, and it's who I've suggested you take a look at to start your mulberry search. Burnt Ridge Nursery. Uh, has a lot of really great stuff as well. Different varieties of autumn olives and things like that. So Burnt Ridge is another place to check out. Coldstream Farms, who I mentioned a lot at the beginning today. Coldstream doesn't have a tremendous amount of edibles, but they do have some. Like I mentioned, elderberry and sand cherry and some other stuff. They also have great plant, uh, pricing on black locust. A lot of other deciduous and coniferous trees. Basically what, what, what Coldstream does for you, if you want to plant a lot of trees... You get up over a quantities of 25, that kind of opens up like wholesale nursery level planting prices, right? So you get really great pricing, great service. Um, 
this fall, I ordered 800 locust trees because 300 are for Nick Ferguson. And uh, I ordered them in two different orders. Like I ordered 500 and I ordered like 300 more or vice versa. Some I don't remember exactly how I did it. I got a phone call immediately. Mr. Spearco, did you really mean to put both of these orders in? Yes, I did. I talked to my friend. He wanted 300 trees. I figured I might as well get some more. Let us do this for you. We'll combine the two orders and save you on shipping. That phone call happened about four hours after I placed my order. Well early into fall, months before they were going to be ready to ship. So that tells you something about the quality of the service they give you. And like my go-to place for a lot of trees is Stark Brothers. Not a lot of the stuff I talked about today. They do some, but not a lot of it. But if you want to buy trees, bare root trees in spring, that are just really beautifully rooted, well pruned, you never feel like, because even with a lot of the people I like, sometimes I get a tree and I feel like, you should have shipped me that. Like, if that was all you had left, you should have like called me up and said, hey, I've got some scraggly stuff left over. It's the last we've got. Um, it's not the best. Can we cut you a deal on it? Do you still want it? Let me send you a picture of it. If you still want it, fine. But like, I just feel like, like it was poorly pruned, long and spindly, sideways growing, like sub-quality, you know? I never get that from Stark Brothers. I get beautiful trees from Stark Brothers, and we put in a really great orchard at Elijah Spring in West Virginia. Uh, that Nick, Nick Ferguson, you know, specked out all the species for us. Every one of those trees came from Stark Brothers. Every one of those trees in its second year is banging. Um, I have trees from everybody I've mentioned on air today. Um, and if I didn't like what I got from them, I, I wouldn't have mentioned them. Uh, and wouldn't put them in the links. Like somebody I'll mention, but I won't put in the links is Gurney's. I buy shit from Gurney's when I can't find it somewhere else. That's the only time. The only time. The quality is shit. So I'm not putting down anybody else here, including many companies I probably just let slip my mind and forgot and didn't put on my list today. But overall, when buying bare roots especially for spring planting, the best trees that I've gotten in to the totality of results have come from Stark Brothers. It's like they really, really care about the quality of what they ship a little bit more than, than most other folks. So, I mean, I'm partners with Bob Wells Nursery. I'm not putting them down, but I've never ordered bare roots from Bob. I've always gotten potted trees shipped to me because he's only a couple hours away. So I might, you know, I, I don't know. But um, never heard any complaints either. But when it comes to like, especially like their, I don't remember what they call it, but it's like their select, I think. Uh, man, the root systems on those plants are just awesome. So, uh, especially for a lot of things, I can't recommend them highly enough. Now, the converse. I bought Smokehouse apples and one other apple variety from Stark Brothers this year. They, they did crappy and they died. I don't think it had anything to do with quality. I think it were just varieties that didn't do good here. But I have to say, those two were not what I normally expect from Stark. So, Even the guys that are really like the A-plus list, the good guys list, occasionally, you know, there's a limit to what you can do with a living thing. And I, I kind of say that at the end so that people will give the nurseryman a little bit of slack, a little bit of slack, because you're dealing with a living being that you're shipping in a box to somebody 20 states away that may not know what they're really doing with it when they plant it. They may plant it too deep. They may plant it at the right time of year. They may not heal it incorrectly. They may not prune it right. I mean, there's a lot of things you don't control. But 
on the other side, there's people that have some unique offerings that I don't mention anymore because I ordered apple trees from them, and I will order a one-year whip, and you come up the rootstock to the, to the whip, and the whip is on a 45-degree angle growing straight out. That should not ship. So everybody on my list ships great quality stuff or they wouldn't be on my list and I wouldn't work with them and I wouldn't recommend them to you. There are like these other companies, I order stuff from them and I hold my breath because I can't get it anywhere else. This is why I like, like those of you that live where you can, like with Bob Wells, go to his nursery and they'll help you and pick out what you want because that's the other thing. Sometimes, you know, if you're dealing in large volumes, And somebody orders 100 trees, you just send them 100 trees. You, you can't go through individually selecting 100 trees. Where you as a, as a buyer can go select your individual trees. So that's another thing to think about there. Anyway, with that, I'm ready to wrap up today. I was trying to think of something that would be an interesting song to close with today that would kind of drive home what we've talked about a little bit. So I have a song for you that's old. It's like, you know, dusty old. Uh, from Cat Stevens. It's called Where Do the Children Play? I guess it's letting a little bit of that bush hippie in me show, right? But I, I think these topics are important because if we're not going to take the time to plant things to sustain ourselves and our children, who the hell is? And this, this song's more about environmental concerns with you know roads everywhere and jet planes flying everywhere, and uh, we just keep going progress, 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 and well, in the end, where do the children play? Well, the good news is there's still plenty of places. This country has more wilderness left in it than Africa does. But that doesn't mean we can't bring a little bit of wild and a little bit of sustainability right into our own backyards. Please consider that as you listen to this, uh, this song. Hope you enjoy it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's fine building jumbo planes or taking a ride on a cosmic train. Switch on summer from a slot machine. Just get what you want to if you want. Yes, you can get anything. I know we've come a long way We're changing day to day But tell me, where do the children play?
sky Scrapers fill the air But will you keep on building higher Till there's no more room up there Will you make us laugh Will you make us cry Will you tell us when to live Will you tell us when to die Changing day to day Tell me Where do the children play? Yeah. 